0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And of course, also brought to you by Policypack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. This week, Microsoft launched Windows 10 Insider Preview Build 21364 to their Windows Insiders via the Dev Channel, and it brings with it the first preview of a GUI app support on the Windows Subsystem for Linux, or WSL as it's more commonly referred to. In an accompanying video, there are demos showing the running of GUI apps like gedit and also. The running of unit tests in the Linux version of Edge all within Windows 10 with no need to spin up a VM or container. It all appears to work seamlessly on Windows 10. There's even a demo where they run Audacity through WSL and record playing a guitar off a mic to the Windows 10 laptop. So clearly the mic that's attached to the Windows 10 laptop is able to pass through into the Linux applications. Very, very cool stuff. If you're running the Insider Preview Builds and want to update to try this out for yourself, there's a set of instructions on how to get started on the Microsoft GitHub repository. And I'll share that with this episode, which is episode 173. And you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. BleepyComputer.com has reported that they've been informed that NVIDIA support has been informing some customers to roll back updates from April when they've been reporting stuttering of their display when gaming. To roll back from April's updates, users would need to uninstall KB5001330 and revert to March's KB500802 update instead. Microsoft will be releasing a new preview cumulative update soon and users can try installing that first to see if it resolves their gaming issues. If not, they strongly suggest that users try the latest graphics drivers or possibly even roll back to older GPU drivers before even contemplating uninstalling security updates due to, you know, the inherent risk with not being up to date on patches. So hopefully by the time... This podcast episode is published, the new preview version of the CU has been released and it's not a problem so much anymore. ZDNet this week reported that Google has released Chrome version 90 and it has a feature which automatically adds HTTPS to a URL when it's available. Chrome 90 also blocks downloads from HTTP sources if the page URL itself is HTTPS. Honestly, I actually thought they were already doing this. I know Brave, the browser Brave, has been doing it for a while, so it's a good move. Further hardening of security standards within the browser and kind of helping users help themselves. The Verge has reported that Edge has also rolled out some significant changes, but in preview only right now. They have now included a performance mode aimed mainly at laptop users to reduce resource consumption and improve battery life. It appears one new part of the feature is that it will change the interval for locking sleeping tabs to five minutes. Obviously, any performance improvements are very welcome. Microsoft have announced they will release the first public preview of Visual Studio 2022 this summer ahead of an expected late 2021 release. According to Thurit.com, there's been significant changes to the UI and performance, but also the biggest change and biggest boon for performance is that Visual Studio is finally going 64-bit. Citrix are running a pretty cool competition to celebrate Earth Day 2021. They are encouraging entrants to submit some new and clever micro apps with a green theme. So I think they give the example in the article of a micro app that might display metrics from a smart thermostat or something like that. If you work with Citrix Cloud and you don't even know what a micro app is, I suggest you check out some of the sessions from previous CUGC Excel events, and also I believe there was one at E2EVC last time around too. In order to enter, you'll have to identify a use case, create a micro app, and record a five minute video of yourself explaining the use case and showing your micro app in action. Citrix say they will plant a tree for each micro app submitted to the challenge and 5,000 trees in honor of the winning entry. They'll also be giving away tickets for a fully charged live event near you, plus a custom wind turbine light show courtesy of their friends at Octopus Energy. They said they'll also be featuring the winning entries on the Citrix Developer YouTube channel and invite the first prize winners to discuss their winning entry with them on a C.U.G.C. webinar. So pretty good chance at some exposure, plus... No matter what, due to the prizes, you'll be doing something pretty good for the environment. In a somewhat strange story, BleepyComputer.com have reported that the University of Minnesota has been banned from the Linux kernel community for purposely submitting code with known vulnerabilities as part of a research study. The developer's justification for taking this step and blocking them was, quote, Commits from the university's addresses have been found to be submitted in bad faith to try to test the kernel community's ability to review known malicious changes. Now, some are claiming they warned about the bad patches being submitted last year, but nothing was done about it, and that now to ban the university and remove all previously submitted patches is a bad approach and could reintroduce bugs. A researcher from the university replied to the developer saying i respectfully ask you to cease and desist from making wild accusations that are bordering on slander these patches were sent as part of a new static analyzer that i wrote and its sensitivity is obviously not great i sent patches on the hopes to get feedback we are not experts in the linux kernel and repeatedly making these statements is disgusting to hear Obviously, it is a wrong step, but your preconceived biases are so strong that you make allegations without merit, nor give us any benefit of doubt. I will not be sending any more patches due to the attitude that is not only unwelcome, but also intimidating to newbies and non-experts. So that's what a researcher from the university said. Now, The university's official Twitter account did post a tweet that stated, "...leadership in the University of Minnesota's Department of Computer Science and Engineering learned today about the details of research being conducted by one of its faculty members and graduate students into the security of Linux." We take this situation extremely seriously. We have immediately suspended this line of research. We will investigate the research method and the process by which this research method was approved, determine appropriate remedial action, and safeguard against future issues if needed. We will report our findings back to the community as soon as practical. So the university (laughs) is much more level-headed and diplomatic in their response than the actual researcher. It would be a shame for the entire university and all of their students to be affected by the actions of potentially one researcher. So I hope common sense prevails. Substack.com posted an interesting update in the ongoing SolarWinds hack saga this week. They said that 18 new command servers have been found and they have stated that based on previous evidence, it appeared there had been one command server per victim. So if that logic still holds true, this could mean the discovery of 18 new victims. Investigators had previously identified about three dozen command and control servers used in the operation. The new findings expand that infrastructure by more than half, so clearly the scope of the attack is even larger than previously thought. It also said that the timeline of events has shifted to a little earlier with the events possibly starting in September 2019. So this story's still got legs and it's still developing, so (laughs) watch this space. The new Stack.io reported on another case of a supply chain hack, albeit this time on a smaller scale. This one affected CodeCov, which is a reporting tool that inserts coverage metrics directly into continuous integration workflows. Its job is to watch for coding problems while running test suites. It especially looks into pull requests where new features and bug fixes are usually found and new bugs and problems often pop up. It has been reported that a security-conscious user noticed the issue when comparing the SHA-1 checksum on the uploader utility on GitHub versus a local version of the uploader that he had, and found that the SHA-1 checksum did not match. According to the company, the altered bash uploader script might affect any credentials, tokens, or keys that customers were passing through their CI runner that would be accessible when the bash uploader script was executed. Also any services, data stores, and application code that could be accessed with these credentials, tokens, or keys, and also the Git remote information of repositories using bash uploaders to upload coverage to CodeCov and CI. So this could have pretty big implications for those who use the product for integrating with their other systems, as credentials used across many different platforms may be compromised. It's believed that the hack occurred about three months before it was noticed and occurred due to an error in the Docker image creation process. It is unknown at this time if the attacker intends to use or sell the credentials, but if affected, you should definitely change all passwords on all systems that were integrated within the process. In a fascinating and somewhat absurd story this week, the CEO of Signal, which is a messaging app that became very popular about five or six months ago as WhatsApp fell from grace, claims to have hacked devices made by the phone unlocking company Cellbrite, which has famously worked with law enforcement to circumvent encryption such as Signals. This is a pretty wild story. Moxie Marlinspike, the CEO of Signal, claims that while he was on a walk, he just happened to find a Cellbrite phone unlocking device. He stated, quote, By a truly unbelievable coincidence, I was recently out for a walk when I saw a small package fall off a truck ahead of me. As I got closer, the dull enterprise typeface slowly came into focus. Cellbright. Inside we found the latest versions of the Cellbrite software, a hardware dongle designed to prevent piracy. Tells you something about their customers, I guess. That's in the quote by the way, I didn't add that. And a bizarrely large number of cable adapters. End quote. Now, the article that I'm referring to for this story suggests whether you believe that story or not, and (laughs) just even the way it's written, like dull enterprise typeface, tells you something about their customers, I guess. Yeah, I'm not really buying it myself. I'll leave that one up to you. But Marlon Spike had his fun and discovered what he claims is many major vulnerabilities in the Salbrite product. He has published details about the exploits outside of normal disclosure guidelines and suggested that he is willing to share details of the vulnerabilities as long as Solbright does the same with all the bugs the company uses to unlock phones, now and in the future. Mr. Marlon Spike said the future versions of Signal will include files that are never used for anything inside Signal and never interact with Signal software or data perhaps implying these could be designed to tamper with Celebrite devices. That's pretty interesting. So essentially, he's learning what the Celebrite product does and then countering that within Signal based on what he's learned. Pretty smart move. And if nothing else, this is just gonna raise the profile further of Signal and how seriously they take their encryption. And speaking of InfoSec related stories, FireEye had a really busy week. They published a story about detecting activity stemming from web shells installed in an enterprise customer running SonicWall email security earlier this year. And worryingly, the customer was running the latest version and there was no security advisory about a vulnerability at the time. They stated that when they did some forensics on the machine, a log deletion was actually taking place to cover tracks. But fortunately, additional logs and previously created virtual server snapshots provided enough evidence to track down the vulnerabilities and the adversary's activities on the host. It's a really interesting article. It's very long. I can't get into the nitty gritty on this podcast. It's far too long. So if you want to check it out for yourself, I'll share a link with this episode. But be aware that patches are now available for these zero day vulnerabilities in the product one of which was being used to create an admin user, allowing them to do whatever they please really. And FireEye have posted instructions on how you can detect intrusion from the vulnerabilities in your environment. In another worrying research paper published by FireEye this week, they warn of attackers leveraging techniques for bypassing single and multi-factor authentication on pulse secure VPN devices, persisting across upgrades and maintaining access through web shells. An investigation by Pulse Secure has determined that a combination of prior vulnerabilities and a previously unknown vulnerability discovered in April 2021, which is now labeled CVE-2021-22893, are responsible for the initial infection vector for this vulnerability. Pulse Secure's parent company, Avanti, has released mitigations for vulnerability exploited in relation to these malware families and the Pulse Connect Secure Integrity tool for customers to determine if their systems have been impacted. A final patch to address the vulnerability will be available in early May of this year. So if you use Pulse Secure VPN, take the patches that are available now and also take the patch as soon as possible when it's released in May. ZDNet covered another fun little security related story this week. A remote code execution vulnerability has been uncovered in a Cosori, I think that's how it's pronounced, smart air fryer device. The device connects to Wi-Fi to enable remote control for its users, and an authenticated backdoor and a heap-based overflow issue have been found, both of which could be exploited via crafted traffic packets although local access may be required for easier exploitation. Unfortunately in this instance, the vulnerabilities have been disclosed without any fix. It passed the 90 day time limit before being disclosed. So I haven't covered many home IoT vulnerabilities because it's not very enterprise related, but I figure at least one was worth a mention because there seems to be a lack of urgency for manufacturers to patch these types of security vulnerabilities, which kind of makes sense, I guess, because it's not really their wheelhouse, but it should be. So a tip to anyone with a smart TV or, or other smart appliances in your home, it is best to segment your home network and run your appliances on a different segment to your other devices. If you wanted to go absolutely committed to it, you could peel off a unique network for each appliance so they can't even communicate across themselves, like you can't have both smart TVs potentially sending packets between one another. Cybertalk.org reported this week on a ransomware attack that led to some food shortages in Dutch supermarkets. A major cheese supplier was the victim this time. The affected company stated that security was in good order when the attack occurred, but they would like to learn from this crisis. And it is an ongoing rat race between the people who build their information systems and the criminals who want to avoid them. Which, that's a pretty true and fair statement. I think that's true for everyone. Now, despite this statement, however, the article is speculating that they were hit by the exchange vulnerability. But that is just speculation. And in that case, then, you know, that vulnerability has been known for a few weeks. They weren't really in good order if that's the case. But regardless, the affected organization turned to pen and paper while restoring their systems. As a result, orders trickled in at a slower rate than usual and processes that are typically automated suffered from lag times. AWS have announced a new AppStream version two feature called Managed Image Updates which allows you to choose to allow AWS to handle a greater portion of the maintenance process. This feature automatically brings an image to the latest baseline for both software components and Windows updates. Managed Image Updates takes your existing image, performs the update operation, and outputs a new image. You can then test the updated image before deploying it to your production fleets. You are still responsible for maintaining Windows updates after creating a new image. But you can do this by continuing to run managed image updates regularly. You are still responsible for maintaining your own applications and dependencies. So I think this is going to be a key feature of all cloud offerings. like It makes sense that there would be a patched stock version of an image that you could ingest into your own process and then just kind of build out on top of that with your applications. And I think that makes Dynamic application delivery with something like MSIX app attach in the future, more important, and also something like Numescent Cloud Paging. You could potentially just have the Cloud Paging Player, for example, which is a very light and quick install, install with something like Intune when the VM is started up before users log in and start their workday. That way all the applications just come in as they require them. NVIDIA have enabled support in beta right now for virtualization on their GeForce GPUs. This is awesome for us home labbers, as these cards are pretty common in high-spec machines already, and could enable many of us to leverage GPUs for our vSphere, Nutanix, or whatever environments we choose. So awesome news. In a little personal news, and also somewhat related to the podcast, I'm really excited to officially sponsor my local soccer club, Galway United. So I'm sponsoring Defender Morris Nugent for the season. So you'll be seeing me tweet about Galway United matches uh, when they're occurring if you follow me on Twitter. But I also sponsored the club by buying an advertising hoarding within the stadium. And this was only possible thanks to this podcast And all the support from everyone who listens to the podcast and my sponsors. So when I decided to bring on sponsors for the podcast, it was partly because this is such a time sink that I needed to at least cover my expenses. And I also wanted to use some of the funds toward training and just paying for me to go to some conferences and stuff like that. Well, because of the pandemic, that hasn't really been happening in the last year. So, I figured this would be a good way to use a little bit of the sponsorship money that I get here to support this club who are really suffering. My club, Galway United, is also supporter owned and supporter run. So, the fact that they haven't been able to have any supporters attend matches has been crippling the club financially. Sponsoring is actually not that expensive. So, if any of my listeners, Would like a bit of advertising. I think there's probably three or four spaces left within the stadium to get an ad. It's pretty easy. The club will arrange the creation of your advertising hoarding and install it into the stadium. You get some pictures with the club mascot, Terry the Tiger, in front of your sign. Possibly if you're sponsoring a player, if there's a player available to sponsor, you could have the player in front of the sign. And they are very, very good on social media of highlighting the sponsors too. And you could sponsor match days as well, or any combination of ways to help and support the club. So if you'd like to help for sure, reach out to me and I can share some more information. And now a weekly webinar. I'm excited to get the chance next week to speak with my buddy and colleague, Tom Fenton, and we're going to be presenting on the VMware Customer Connect platform. It's free to attend and you can register right now. The event will be taking place on the 28th of April, so next Wednesday, at 9 a.m. Pacific. In this session, Tom and I will look at some common issues administrators are experiencing in their VMware Horizon environments and how, by using VMware Advanced Monitoring for Horizon, which is powered by ControlUp you can quickly discover the root cause. We will also be showing how you can use automated script actions to prevent these issues from popping up in future without any further administrator interaction required. In preparing for this session, because I've got pretty good experience with VMware Horizon, I think between Tom and I, we have almost 25 years of collective experience working in VMware Horizon environments. But I went through an issues list that I kept in our own SharePoint site. And I went through that issues list and I was like, okay, well, let's go back to see how this presented as an issue and how I got it resolved. So definitely gonna have real world examples. So be sure to check out this session and I'll share a link for registration with this episode. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Dennis Moorman posted on C.U.G.C.'s website on how to create a start menu on RDSH using Citrix WEM and FSLogix. So this is something that I do on my published desktops. I use Citrix WEM and sometimes a combination of FSLogix. I don't really feel that much of a need to use the FSLogix piece because I'm hiding the system drive so users can't really get in there. And even if they could... We don't have very technical users to go in and find um, applications where the start menu icon hasn't been published to them. But it's a really interesting way to curate and maintain your start menu. So for more details on that, check out this blog post and I'll share it with this episode. Nate Chamberlain has some really nice, short, informative, but concise videos on five ways to improve efficiency using OneNote and Outlook. Tyler Leinhardt shared a really nice tip on how to level up your PowerShell debugging by being able to see values of variables right in line within your code editor. To get this you turn on a debug value setting and I'll share a link to that for more information. It is very very useful so you don't have to run your code or set up any like breakpoints or anything like that to see what the values are. You just put this into your code and you can highlight over and see it. Very cool stuff. Finally, I posted a blog again last week. This time it was on the topic of security. So I'm not a security guy by any means, but I feel like doing this podcast for three years, covering so many security related stories. And then also just by way that all IT people now have to be involved somewhat in the security story like i think it was all hands on deck when you know wannacry was hitting all across the world and so forth but i just posted my thoughts on you know how personal security is very important in terms of corporate security and there's some tips in there and just general information around ways to protect your personal security and de facto corporate security too. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.